Lord, I know that the truth is what you use to save us. It's what you use to help us grow in Christ's likeness. And Father, I ask that you, by your Spirit this morning, would be enlightening our minds to see what it is you want us to be and who it is you're calling us to be as those redeemed ones now in the life of your Son. Father, we know that it's only by your Spirit that new life occurs. It's the work of your Spirit in us that sanctifies us and makes us more and more male and female into the image of your Son as you mean us to be. And so we trust that you're doing that this morning and ask also, Lord, that the words of truth from you and from your Word, Lord, will carry through this week, this month, and in the years ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Hopefully if you've got a bulletin, you've got a study sheet. I'll get to the title of this uh, chat in a minute. Uh, Men with Chess was clear in my own mind when I uh, put that title down. My wife made some comment and I realized, wow, this could sound really strange to others. So we'll clarify that here in a little bit. Um, You know, just to get everybody's attention right at the beginning... We don't talk much about castration in our culture very often, you know, at least not in polite circles, certainly not in church, right? Or emasculation, and that's for shock effects, and now I know I have everybody's attention. Uh, You know, and the curious thing about it is we don't talk about it, but boy, is it going on. Emasculation going on all around us. Sometimes it's done to men, or animals too, we'll mention, But a lot of times it's done by men to themselves. Emasculation. You know, if you take a man or an animal and you castrate them, you remove their male organs so they don't have testosterone. And so they become less male than they were meant to be. So when you read in the pages of the scriptures about eunuchs, you're reading about men that were castrated, right? You know, back in those days, if you were a king or you were a bigwig and you had a lot of property, you probably had several wives and you probably had some concubines too. And so to protect those women from other people, you, you hired yourselves or you, you collected by, by one way or another eunuchs. You got big strapping guys who are probably healthy and fit and, and could defend whatever you wanted them to defend and you castrated them. So they didn't have that male sex drive. So your women were safe around them. Eunuchs. You know, if you go forward in history just a little bit to the period of the Middle Ages, for instance, too, uh, back in those days, women did not sing in church services. uh, Or if you were watching plays, there were no women in plays either. All the roles were filled by men. Or in the churches, oftentimes, by boys. And you know, in the Middle Ages, they liked the sound of those young, high voices from boys so well that they said, we want to preserve those. The best of those young boys' voices we want to preserve. So they castrated those young boys so that as they grew, their voice wouldn't deepen the way boys' voices do as they grow up. You know, if your young man in your family is hitting adolescence, one of the first things that happens is his voice deepens. These guys, though, they wanted that more feminine, high-pitched sound, and so they made sure as much as they could that those voices wouldn't deepen, that they would keep those high-sounding voices as long as they could. They called them castrati, castrati. If you have a farm background, 
if you've dealt with horses or cattle, you know that castrating an animal can be a really helpful thing. Uh, I still have vivid memories of my daughters going up to a friend's house who had horses. He bred horses. And there was a demon behind the fence, as far as my girls were concerned. It was an Arabian stallion. And there was a mare in heat on that farm. And my girls were terrified to come out of the van. We'd come to see the horses. They weren't going to get out. They were terrified of that black stallion. You take a horse like that and you geld it. You take that testosterone out of its system and you tame it. You make it more meek. And you take what might be a fire-breathing animal, so to speak, and you make it something that you can use, that you can ride or work with. If you've got cattle, you know, bulls, you see a big bull in the pasture, they, they are incredibly powerful and with each other incredibly aggressive. So if you're after beef cattle, you don't want those guys wasting all their time and energy fighting each other. So you do the same thing. You castrate them, you remove that testosterone, and you end up with pretty docile beasts who they're interested now in eating and drinking. You know, they're putting on weight. They're headed towards a happy hamburger heaven. You know, that's what we're after. So in the realm of animals and on the farm, this is a great practice. This has a meaningful end, and it's a helpful thing. But guys, the emasculation of men is a tragedy. Nothing less than a tragedy. And when we were created, you go back to the Genesis accounts, we were created male and female in God's image. And that means that for men to be less male than God intended them, they failed to reveal the character and the glory of God as God meant them to. Same is true for females. But in our culture and in our time, there's a huge, huge push to emasculate men. And sometimes it's the forces outside of us, but frankly, sometimes it's what we as men are doing to ourselves, which actually has the the impact of emasculating us. And we lose the image of God God meant us to have as men. Now, the kind of emasculation I'm talking to, uh, talking about this morning, you're probably already aware, is not primarily physical. It's moral, it's spiritual, and it's emotional. And the reason this should matter to all of us, one is just the image-bearing of God. That if we're going to reflect the glory of God in His image as men and women on the earth, we need to be fully men and we need to be fully women. We don't want to diminish those distinctives. We want to elevate them the way God wants them to be. The other thing is this, though, and this is huge. Men, whether you like it as men or women or I like it or not, is irrelevant. God calls men to lead. And you know what? If you emasculate men as leaders, what have you done? You've opened the rest of the family and the culture and the society up to who knows what. And that's where we're going. We live today in an emasculated culture. I love women. I love my wife. I love my daughters. But part of the fallout of feminism has been that men have been emasculated and told you don't matter and you're not needed as men. And it's a huge lie. And as you look at statistics, whatever kind of statistics you want to about the culture we live in today, you'll see our culture is falling apart. And in part, it's falling apart because men are not leading. 
And half the time, they don't even know they're supposed to. And this means they are not bearing the image of God as men that God made them to do, to bear, and to be. We're not leading the way we're called to lead. We, are, we have fallen from sort of the heights of glory God meant us to have and Christ redeemed us to have, and we've become something less in the male category than God ever intended. And there's fallout all around because of this. The culture or the church or the family, any place where males are not leading in Christ-like manhood, things are going to fall apart, and we are not going to have the impact on our families in our churches and certainly not on the larger culture if we're falling down in this arena of Christ-like masculinity. Now, getting to the title of this, Men with Chests, if you're a C.S. Lewis reader, you know where this comes from. You know, and it's amazing to read some of these guys how prescient they were on what was coming even in their day when these things were, were just in germ form. 1947, Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, the opening chapter there is called Men Without Chests. Men Without Chests. And this was a series of essays Lewis was writing about academics, and this sounds really inane or boring, but what Lewis was saying was that the, the fallout of the academic uh, philosophy and mindset and the books in his day, this is in the 1940s, would be to create a society in which people were no longer what God had created them to be. They were going to lose their moral center of gravity. In his words, men would become men without chests. And for him, this is a picture of humanity in the male form, head, chest and gut or soul so listen to what lewis says without the aid of trained emotions we, we would typically say heart today without the aid of trained emotions the intellect is powerless against the animal organism sort of our base our gut or our emotions he says later the head rules the belly through the chest again we would typically say through the heart the seed of emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. It's sort of our predisposition and how we're going to see things and act on them. The indispensable liaison between cerebral man, guys who tend to be just academic but don't, don't get it at some gut level, or visceral man, guys who are just living out of their emotions but without thought. Speaking of a particular book, he says... The operation of the green book and its kind is to produce what may be called men without chests. Men without a moral center. Men without a heart that's informed by truth so that their mind and their emotions follow what he called the stable sentiments. Now getting to this whole theme of emasculation specifically related to men this morning... He closes this essay by saying this. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and we bid the geldings be fruitful. 
And guys, this is where we live. He wrote this in 47. This is full-blown. This is in the United States today. Men without chess are men without a moral Christ-informed center of gravity. A man without a chest. Geldings. Male, but morally and spiritually impotent. Men without heart, males without a chest to rule their mind and emotions. This morning we are not talking about in masculinity or manhood, chest-thumping machismo. We're talking about a Christ-centered, Christ-informed heart and mind and soul. And so when we say men with chests this morning, we're talking about real masculinity, redeemed masculinity, informed by the truth of the Scriptures, and Christ reproduced as a male, fully in us as he intends to be. That's what we're talking about, men with chests. And to a significant degree in our day, this is true in our churches, we have become spiritual geldings. This is the church. We, we are not pretty much in statistics a dime's difference between the church and the world today. And in part, it's because the church is filled with spiritual geldings. Male, but morally and spiritually impotent. We need men with chests, men with a Christ-centered moral compass. So guys, let me ask you, are you a moral gelding? Are we spiritual castrati? We, right here today, is that us? Is that who we are and where we live? Are we male but impotent in the things that matter to God? Now, if you couldn't tell, this message specifically this morning is for men, two men specifically. And gals, uh, no insult to you this morning. I'll let a woman talk to you about womanly female things, but maybe on another day. Related to the female audience, though, you know men, you have men in your life. You have dads and brothers and cousins and friends and folks in church. The information that we're covering this morning is still very applicable for you simply as you pray for, as you interact with, as you try to be an encouragement to the men in your life. But specifically, we're talking to men this morning. This is the opening salvo in a subject and in a focus for leadership in this church that we hope to take place over about a year and a half. Uh, we have had discussions for about half a year now related to our concern for men in our church not, not getting what God wants from them, expects from them. Highly concerned. And so we are focusing, we'll come back to this repeatedly for about a year and a half, not all the time, but semi-regularly. We'll have two men's advances, one in this October and one in the following October that will sort of wind that up. We'll take a survey at the beginning and we'll take a survey at the end and we'll see if we've made any difference. But this is the opening salve on what we want to be a focus of about a year and a half on calling men up to be men, to become men with chests. Uh, also, right after the service, uh, if you can, please, if you're a guy, and when I say guys, I'm, I'm thinking if you're adolescent and up, uh, come forward. We've got some surveys we want to hand out to you for you to fill out on your own, but also we want to arrange some meetings because we want to follow up on this and be serious about this. I'm going to address men in three categories. This is the way they're broken down in 1 John 2. Young men, men, and fathers. Young men, starting with you, 
young men for me here is about 15 to 25. That is from the time you hit adolescence and you're becoming a man, sort of to the time you've sort of finished your college career or you're prepared for the rest of your adult life, let's say. This is the time in your life when you're preparing for the future. And decisions you make now, they'll affect the rest of your life, really. They do. The career paths, the the women you marry, the friends you make, all this will have a significant impact for the rest of your life. So don't lose sight. Don't think these are are days you can sort of fritter away because they're really, really important. Uh, Paul wrote his young protege, Timothy, 1 Timothy 4. He said a couple things there that I'd like to mention to you starting he said first pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching first timothy 4 16 young timothy pay close attention to yourself tim you know if you go to proverbs 4 a similar thought stated a little differently watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the issues of life he told timothy you need to clue into where your head and your heart are at it's going to affect your teaching this is where it goes for timothy he's a leader in the church there in ephesus but he said pay attention to yourself where is your heart where is your head where are you going are you making choices now that are going to make you the kind of man 10 years 20 years down the road that you'll be proud of that you'll be glad you are or are you already starting down the road that you're going to regret the rest of your life pay close attention to yourself he says and also in verse 12, he says this, Timothy's a young guy, and if you read First and Second Timothy, you know he's a timid guy. Paul's got to sort of keep him pumped up. Keep going, he says in Second Timothy. Relight the fires. You can't afford to quit. I can't afford for you to quit. In, here in verse 12, he says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example for those who believe. Guys, as a young Christian guy, you should believe and you should strive to be an example for any Christian, young or old. The rest of us should be able to look at you as an example of Christ-likeness here and now. Not when you're 40 years old or 50 years old. You can be an example of Christ-likeness now in your early years. And this should be your goal. This is where we should start. And guys, uh, young men in our culture right now, you face singularly the most challenging time in the history of the world for a young guy to grow up with his head and his heart in the right place it's now it's it's in these days kid you not huge difference from when i was growing up a mere 40 years ago or so huge difference Uh, there's two primary ways in which i want to suggest you'll find yourself a gelding if you're not careful morally spiritually the first if you can't guess ahead is porn it's pornography just a couple statistics about pornography by the way some of what i say will obviously cross categories young men older men etc but pornography in the u.s is a 13 billion dollar a year industry now i thought that was huge but you know worldwide it's almost 100 billion dollar industry every year pornography Uh, you know pornography on the internet drives most of the software development how can we be more efficient in delivering pornography online that's what drives most of the software development on the internet if it's video related that's what drives it this is from 2008 a secular study said 67 percent of young men and uh, 50 percent of young women agreed that viewing pornography is acceptable 87 percent of young men and 31 percent of young women reported using pornography 
By the way, the incidence of the use of pornography by women statistically typically is now is always over 30%. And what has happened is as men have been emasculated and degraded, women are following. I mean, that's predictable, but that's exactly what's happening. 2008, a Christianity Today poll, 70% of American men ages 18 to 34 view internet pornography at least once a month. World Magazine, 50% of Christian men and over a third of church leaders, Christian pastors, use pornography. I read online about a gal who used to be in the porn industry. She became a Christian, and she's very outspoken on this. And she was at some event speaking to men at an event, and she said, any man here with, with an issue with pornography, stand up. And, and about, I don't know if they said something like a third or so of the men st- stood up. And then she said, no, guys, really? And they said about 70% of the men stood up. It's that pervasive. It's in the church. Guys, if you figure these numbers, you know that we, not some anonymous folks, you know that we in this room have an issue with pornography. Just statistically, it's a given. That's where we're at. And for young guys, this is, uh, you know how the, the thing with temptation is you promise somebody something, but there's always a downside, you know. It's like the genie, you let the genie out, you know, but the genie's going to get you, you know. You're not clever enough. And in these temptations, there's a downside. So I find it highly ironic, but not surprising. You know, if you view pornography, you think you get the masculine male response, right? Your sex drive rises, right? But you know what you do, what happens to you guys if you view pornography long term? Do you know what happens to your sex drive? It goes in the tank because you become desensitized over time. And so if I'm a strapping young guy and I think pornography is cool and it's where it's at and I'm, and I'm macho with pornography, you know what it actually does to me long term? It emasculates me. It drops my sex drive. It doesn't raise it. This is ironic, but this is true. All the studies show the same thing. Isn't it interesting that in the age of pornography, what are the meds we're pushing on on the TV all the time? Cialis. There's a reason. There's a cause and effect here. Pornography does not elevate anyone's masculinity. It reduces it. It doesn't make you more of a man. It lessens your masculinity. This is ironic. And and guys are going in. They don't realize... There are guys going to counseling and they're telling their counselors, I'm married and I have no interest in my wife. I can't respond to my wife anymore. It's always the same story. It's pornography. They're desensitized. They've done other studies. They've looked brain scans on these guys that are addicted to pornography. They'll tell you, I can't stop. And they've said, I don't know how this works neurologically. They said, it looks like someone who's been a heroin addict. The physiology in the brain changes. You become physically a different person for the use of pornography over the long haul. So this is huge. This alone, this just by itself, this is going to get a bunch of guys. It's going to spiritually castrate. It's going to have this gelding effect on young men who don't want to head that way, but this is where it'll take them. Real masculinity is opposed to pornography for all kinds of reasons. You know, if you look at Job 31.1, you know, Job was suffering tremendously. And his friends were saying, Job, it's because you've dishonored God. You've, you've been evil or wicked. 
And one of the things Job says is, and of course in the book that's not why he was suffering, but Job says, related to the implication of sexual immorality, he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes, how could I gaze at a virgin? He says, guys, you don't understand, I've not been unfaithful to my wife. I had already decided a long time ago, I made a covenant with my eyes, I said, I am not looking at anyone or anything that I shouldn't. My eyes are reserved for my wife. I've made a covenant. That's not part of my problem. Or you look at 1 Timothy 5, verse 2. Paul's telling a young guy who's a leader in the church how to interact with others in the church. And he says, if you're talking to an older man in the church since you're young, appeal to him as a father. Show him respect and deference like you would to your own father. But he says, if you're interacting with the older women, treat them as mothers respectfully with deference and he says and younger women as sisters in all purity you know if you talk to most young guys and you say would you ever be interested in a woman like your sister they're like no way even if she's a great gal you're supposed to to timothy says treat those young gals like sisters in all purity that's what men with chests do they they behave appropriately towards other women in the church or outside of the church a huge part of Christ-like masculinity is the call that God puts on men to defend and serve the best interests of the weaker and the fairer sex. And you cannot do that. We cannot do that and entertain pornography. You can't do it. How, if we're called to defend and protect women, just like children or orphans, those who God says in God's economy are weaker... How can we do that, have Christ's mind, Christ's chest in this, have a moral center, and yet participate in something that degrades women and it just makes them objects? You can't get there. You can't do both. Certainly not at the same time. Ask yourself this too. When I was a young guy, my dad, words of wisdom, you know, I'd left a dance at school and he asked me how the time went and I can't remember what I said and and out of nowhere, my dad says, uh, son, remember that those girls are someone's daughters. Like, okay, dad, thanks. Okay, it's out of the blue. That's all he said, okay. You know, how do you feel? If you're a young guy or an older guy, how do you feel about your own mother? You know, do you love your mother? If you have sisters, do you, would you want to defend or protect your sisters? You know, most of us would say, well, yeah, of course. And, you know, any of those gals, willing or not, who are into pornography or who are producing the pornography part of the process, they're somebody's mom, they're somebody's sister, they're somebody's daughter. And if we would want our mom treated respectfully by others or our sisters treated respectfully by others, wouldn't we want to give the same thing to someone else's mom or sister? You see where that goes? It's just consistent. It's just consistent. Men with informed chests refuse pornography. Guys, if for no other reason, this would be self-serving, because it will emasculate you. You'll become less manly, not more, through the use of pornography. Uh, this is the other temptation to the young guys specifically. It's the Peter Pan syndrome. It's to refuse to grow up. It's to take on alternate realities. Uh, you know Peter Pan the story uh, he's the bad boy who never grows up and in our culture for some demented twist and reason we think this is a good thing 
there are Hollywood stars who come to mind, and if I say them, probably offend half the women in here, who are sissies. But boy, they're, they're making the big bucks. You know what? Because they look like a feminine version of a man. Because they don't look like men. They look like sissies. We growing up to be men, this is a big thing, and you're living in a culture that's going to tell you it's okay to check out and remain a boy. And guys, boys don't have chest. They don't have moral centers of gravity. Men do. And you've got to aim high for manhood. You know that primarily where I'm going with this is in video games and alternate reality games. I, I know almost nothing about this stuff, but I just listen to the guys who do. And the hours and the days and the weeks and the months, they'll tell you they've wasted their life playing some alternate reality game. They're not growing up into manhood. They're playing at boyhood games. And that becomes sort of who they are for the future. They're not plugged in. They're not growing up. Now, you know, if you think even 50 to 100 years ago, you think of Christian men, I'm thinking Christian men, authors who use their imagination and fictional literature. That's a sort of an alternate reality, right? We get into a good book. But you know, you read the likes of George MacDonald and Tolkien and Lewis and maybe the Stephen Lawheads today. You read stories that take you in because they're great stories, but they elevate your sense of what it means to be a man. They call you up to character and to courage and to virtue and to chivalry. Those were all benefits. But these games, they're an end in themselves. They don't call us up to anything higher. They just waste our time. We just dribble our life away Video game after video game after video session after video session. We're not growing up. We're staying spiritually boys, men without chests. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, a little different, little different uh, scenario when Paul's talking theologically about a different thing. But he says there, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. And Guys, I just say, I'm not opposed to games. I mean, I'll, I'm not opposed to almost anything in and of itself. You know, we get legalistic and we say, don't do this, don't do that. I'm not saying that. But ask yourself, where are you headed? Do you use a game once in a while with your guys because it's good to blow off steam and it's good fellowship? Or is that where you're living? Are you being drawn into that or are you being drawn into reality? And I think tragically, one of the reasons why both pornography and video games are sort of these alternate realities can become so compelling, it's because we don't have a life of our own. It's because we're not plugged into the author of life who's writing the greatest story ever told. That's going on right now. If we're not plugged into that, we're looking for something. And so we're open to something. So rather than invest our lives in some game version that ends when we turn the button off, how much better to be plugged in into the things God's doing, the great story, the great adventure going on right now. How about plugging into life more fully instead of the video games? Young guys, let me leave you with this. Two examples, just because otherwise I'm going to do nothing but talk, talk, talk. Let me give you two examples, maybe some pictures that you can remember for this. The first is the foolish son in Proverbs. Very briefly, when you read the book of Proverbs, especially the opening nine chapters, you read the father's appeal to his sons to bind what he's going to tell him. The group of guys in here that we've been going through Proverbs together. It's, it's so challenging and helpful. 
And dad is trying to get Junior to buy into truth and to be wise and to live successfully. But he's, he's quick to point out there's another kind of young guy out there, Junior. And he goes into the city. In chapters 5 and 7 of Proverbs especially, key on this, the young simpleton, he's, he doesn't, he's not a man with a chest. He does not have a Christ-informed, truth-informed, moral center of gravity. So he goes into the town, and the gal comes out, and she's attractive, and she happens to be married, but that's no problem. And she invites him in, and he's flattered, and oh, isn't this great? And dad, looking with his son out the window, says, Junior, that guy, he's like a big strapping bull with a ring through his nose, and he doesn't know he's going in and he's going to be slaughtered. He's going to die. In fact, everybody that goes in with this gal, they die. This guy thinks it's a good thing. The naive, simple fool of Proverbs thinks he's getting something, and dad says, nope, he's going to die in there. You contrast that with young, a young man with a moral chest, David, the giant killer in 1 Samuel 17. He's a, guy, he's a young guy. He's probably a teenager, maybe late teens. And you know, he's the youngest of seven sons, and, and his older brothers, they disrespect him. They don't think much of David. And in his life, he's, he's taking care of a few sheep on the back 40 for dad. And it does get exciting once in a while, you know, some lions once in a while, maybe some bears, got to fight them off. But when young David, with a Christ-informed, God-informed chest, moral center, when he sees this Philistine giant cursing the God of Israel, Yahweh, and the armies of Israel, he gets fired up because his head and his heart and his emotions are in the right place. And he says, we cannot let this go on. You know, you come to me with a sword, a spear, a shield. I come to you in the name of the living God. That's That's a young guy. That's a guy your age teens you know maybe early 20s maybe that's david which do you want to be do you want to be the naive guy that marches happily to his death do you want to be david and be taken on the giants guys next group men i'm thinking post-college through raising children about 25 to 55 as you know these these are the years which typically most of us are making that significant investment in our careers and if we're married, we're having our families. We're having and we're raising our families. Um, these are fruitful years because you're investing, hopefully wisely. Before I get to husbands and to fathers, let me mention uh, there's a growing group, as you're probably aware of, a single adults, single adults, single adult men. Uh, the average age now for a young man to get married is about 28. And I can tell you because I talk to young guys and young gals, most of the adult singles that you know don't want to remain single. That's just where they're at. They want to get married and have a family. But lots of things that work in the culture, you know, uh, marriage is being put off more and more. So about 28 for guys, about 27 for gals is the average age now. But most of the adult men that aren't yet married, they actually want to be. And I think there's this, there tends to be this sense that my life's not complete or I'm less male or manly than I want to be because I'm not married. And I would just say this. For you guys, if you don't hear anything else, uh, Jesus was single, never got married, never had sex, Jesus. And, of course, he is the most masculine man who's ever walked the face of the earth, which we'll mention here at the end also. You are no less Christ-like in your manhood if you are an adult single not yet married than if you're married. That, that's not the measure of anything. 
And I would just say, in these years, as long as God leaves you single, remember that that's his sovereign plan. God is omnipotent. That means he causes or he allows all things. As long as in God's sovereignty you find yourself single, ask yourself, is my life set on developing Christ-like manliness, a moral center, a heart and a chest, and am I seeking to honor God, Christ, in all the ways I can? You know, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, he talked about being single or being married. And he said, guys, if you're single, you have this undistracted ability to seek to honor Christ, to invest in the lives of others, not just a wife or a family, but more broadly in the church or evangelistically out of the church. And so as long as you find yourself in this category, ask yourself this, do I have a heart to honor Christ right where I'm at? Or am I just, am I consuming my life because I'm feeling sorry for myself or I feel like things aren't going to be right until I get married? Every day you and I have is a gift. Don't waste one of them. And don't worry about not being married. I would say, pray about it. Talk to your friends about, <laughs> about prospective spouses. I'm all for guys and gals getting married. This is a good thing. God's in it. It's not good for the man to be alone, God said. So for sure, pursue marriage if that's your heart. But until you get there, you're no less manly, no less masculine because you're an adult single male. So use these days, use these years in all the ways you can. Plug in with other singles and encourage them because they need it. But also, guys, plug into other families. We've had some of our best time with other adult singles in our family. They need you and you need them. It's not just hanging out with the other singles you need to be plugged in in all healthy ways in the church jesus was single and you can be like him and honor him having a being a man with a chest just like jesus was husbands uh, though he never married christ's love for the church is the model that we're supposed to have towards our wives uh men with chests love their wives and they keep their promises you know, when we get married, most of us in that vow say something like, forsaking all others will be faithful only to you. And ask yourself this, as a married man, am I keeping my marriage promise to my wife? Am I in my heart and my mind and my soul excluding options in my imagination or on the TV screen or on the computer screen? Am I cutting off every other female as not an option because I made a promise to a young woman when we were both young, most, most often when we are young. Am I being faithful? Am I keeping my promise? Because men with chests keep their promise. Guys, the other thing about men with chests in the marriage realm is that men with chests invest in their wives. That's the whole call to men in the marriage relationship. It's to sacrificially lay our lives down in a redemptive manner for our wives' sake. So, one of the things at weddings that I routinely ask or wedding preparation is, will your wife be a better person because she's married to you? Are you making a conscientious investment in your wife so that she's becoming more the person in Christ God means her to be? If you're not, you're not living like a man with a Christ-centered moral, moral center of gravity. We are supposed to sacrificially love our wives. That means we reduce maybe time with the guys. It means we don't hunt or fish as often or whatever it is that might take us away. It means we're conscientious. My wife is growing in Christ. Her best 
needs are being met because I'm investing in her, because she's married to me. Men with chests love their wives and keep their promises. Something else too. If you're a husband and you have children, do your children know not to disrespect your wife, their mom? Do your children know that they may not disrespect their mother because she's your wife? Does your wife know you have her back? And we'll talk more about fathers and and kids here in a second. But in that relationship, you with your wife, do you have your wife's back related to the way your children treat her? You should. Your children should not be able to disrespect your wife, their mother. Shouldn't happen. Last in this category, fathers. And before I even talk to fathers, let me just mention this. I find it very interesting. Ironic, just like pornography emasculates men. I find it ironic that in the most sex-saturated culture of all time, we're a sterile group. We act like a gelded group because we're not having children. You know, the United States, 2.1 or 2 or whatever it is, the birth rate, you know, it's just that. It, it's not a growing population. It's stagnant. It's static. doesn't grow. You know, U.S. growth grows through illegal immigration. It does not grow from people having families. The statistics bear this out. You know, if you go to Europe, the whole West, the whole Western world, uh, they've gelded themselves. They have less than replacement numbers across all of Europe, all of East Europe, all of Russia. Those nations, they're killing themselves. They're aborting themselves. Their future children are being aborted you name it, they're not having kids and they're killing, and this is us too, and we're killing our children too. The most sex-saturated culture of all time is sterile. We're not having kids. What's the deal? You know, a huge part of it, of course, just goes down to we say we're selfish. We want just the pleasure related to sex, the sex act or the sex experience with our spouse as married. God has a whole lot more. And you know, Psalm 127 is still true. A children are a gift. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Children are not something to avoid. And just ask on the front end, are we guys manly enough to have and raise children? It requires something of us. You've got to lay your life down. Start with your wife. Have a few kids. Try that on for size, you know. Man, can't do all those things I used to do. Can't spend my money where I wanted to spend it. This was another one of my dadisms. Dad said, son, before I was married, I had money in my wallet and a suitcase in my hand. And he said, after I got married, all that changed. (laughs) In spades with 11 kids. Uh, Children are a gift. This should be a normal part of marriage. Now, as I say this, I know, I know there are issues. I know there's, I know guys are preparing for careers. I know there's med school, there's law school, there's grad school. I know there's financial issues. I know all this. I would just say this. You ask yourself as a couple, where are we heading? Where are we heading? What's our goal? What's our desires? Do our desires reflect God's desires? Having kids is God's desire for for married couples, guys. This is the deal. Sex-saturated culture, but we're not having kids. Crazy. Psalm 127. Uh, also, are we spiritually leading our family? Are we spiritually leading our family? Guys, I think, and this is, my, this is one of my soapboxes, and I'm trying, trying not to give you too much of it this morning. 
Uh, fathering is my deal. And guys, the church has fallen down. We as men have fallen all over the place as fathers. You know the reason that you, all the statistics show evangelical churches are turning out atheists and pagans? It's our families. And guys, dads, that means it's us. It's not the women. You know, I, I'm amazed. We had missionary friends. They traveled halfway around the world to share the gospel with Nepal. They come back to the United States. They want to find a good church so their kids will hear the gospel. What? I kid you not. True. So their kids will get saved because they'll send them to a good church. Men, as fathers, the Christian school, the Sunday school, the church, none of those entities are responsible ultimately for your children. You are. You are. As the father. And as fathers, we have totally fallen down on the job. And it's reflected in the church and it's reflected in the culture. We as men, we've got to be reading the Bible with our kids. We've got to be teaching what we think is true and what matters. They've got to be getting it from us. You cannot delegate this to your wife. You can't delegate this to anyone. Every time you read this in the Scriptures, it's the same thing. Deuteronomy 6 is to fathers, it's not to mothers. Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, it's all about dads. It's all about dads. And dads have checked out and we have not been doing the do. And our families and our churches reflect that fact. We are not being fathers with a Christ-informed heart and mind and soul. It is not happening. And in fact, I'll tell you, it's this very, very issue that has led to the discussions we've had in the last six months and to this push to tell men, you've got to man up. You've got to get in the game. It's about fathering. That's what has driven this whole effort. It's what's behind all of it. Uh, your kids need to hear from you the gospel. They need to hear from you the truth of the scripture. They need to see that you live it and you believe it. And it's worth their living and believing. It's up to us as dads to pass that on. Are we spiritually leading our family when we sit down and when we rise up? Also, related to this, um, I found especially among younger families, I'll step on some more toes here for just a second. Young families, there's this thought that you're parenting better than your parents did. And I just want to ask you, where did God ever say that's the standard? That is not in the Bible. Your parents are not the model, ultimately, for what you're called to and what you're responsible to, for as parents. And you know, you look at your neighbors, your unsaved neighbors, and you say, well, we're better parents than them too. And? The significance of that statement is what? Or you come to church on Sunday morning and you say, my, my kids behave better than their kids. And again, I'm thinking, and your point is what? The standard is the Scripture. It's God's standard. It's not ours. And I am just blown away. There are very, very few families that have a heart, a Christ-informed center of gravity to raise their kids for Christ. It is not happening in our church, just to step on toes. Do you, as a father, do you require first-time obedience of your children? Do you know if your children are free to disrespect you, they'll do the same thing to God? Do you know that when you teach your children to fear you enough to respect and obey you, you've liberated them from sin and temptation? Do you know that? I, I can't believe... 
People grew up thinking Kathy and I were the harshest of parents. And it's like we just, we accepted it as a badge of honor. But talk to our girls and ask them if they thought we were harsh. They grew up happy. They're well-adjusted young ladies. And it's because we knew we've got to cut off disobedience from them as an option. Because once you do, they're free to say, oh, okay. Well, I guess we'll get on doing this thing mom and dad said. You relieve them of the burden of trying to see if you're serious when you say yes to this and no to that. And guys, we're all born with a sinful nature. Your children are going to test the fences because they have to. That's the way they, they come out. We don't, we don't teach them to disobey. They're going to do it. It's a given. So as fathers, if we don't have a heart to get our children, they obey their mom and dad. Not the third or fourth or fifth time we say something. That's total disrespect. And you're training them to do that same thing to God as adults. So as fathers, are we constraining our children to obedience knowing that in doing so, we're giving them a Christ-informed center of gravity. You're freeing them from sin and temptation. This is what we're called to as fathers, and we're not doing it. We have not been doing it. Men with chests instruct their children. The examples on this godly Job, uh, how are we doing? Gosh, I'm doing great on time. You guys, we've probably got another hour, hour and a half going here at least. Uh, <clears throat> godly Job, a lot of us askew the book of Job. It's about suffering, right? And it's painful. You know, it is one of the most encouraging books in all the Bible, isn't it, Dodie? Yeah, it's great. It's so encouraging. One of the things that really strikes me about Job, you read what kind of a man he was in the opening chapters, as a father specifically and as a husband. You know what he's doing when you meet Job? He's praying for his grown children. And he's offering sacrifice for them because he knows they're going to sin. We're all going to sin. And he cares about his kids who don't even live under his house and his roof anymore. He's praying for them and he's offering sacrifice for them. What a guy. And you know, he's faithful to his wife through the whole story. And she is nothing but a millstone around his neck during his days of suffering. You know, Satan leaves her there for a reason. He could have taken her. He could have. God says anything but him, his life, and he leaves her, and there's a point to be made there, isn't there? But you know, he's faithful through the whole thing, and he says there in chapter 31, I've made a covenant with my eyes. My wife's the only gal for me. You know, you go to the end of the book of Job, what do you find? He's got more kids, and I take it from his wife. Job is just this outstanding example of a husband and a father, outstanding example. Contrast that with David the indulgent. You know, David in his youth is a great example of Christ-like masculinity. But you get up into his years as a, as a father and a king, and, and his stock just plummets, and it's because he's indulgent. The first thing is he marries a bunch of gals and has a bunch of concubines. And guys, that was never God's plan. Never God's plan. He was indulgent. You know, you think about his great sin with Bathsheba. When he was supposed to be out at war, that's when he's at home taking it easy. He was indulgent. You look at the way he treated his children. David was a terrible father. He was a terrible father. He had too many kids, one to be a good father too. But you may think of Amnon and Tamar. When he should have intervened, he didn't. You think later, when he should have forgiven a son and restored him, he doesn't. Uh, David is just a terrible example. He curses his family through his sin. God says the sword will never leave your household because of what you've done. I gave you all this, and yet this is what you've done. He curses his family. David was a terrible husband and father. 
and his and his children and his generations after him bore the brunt of that do you want to be a godly job rising up and blessing his kids or do you want to be an indulgent david christ-centered center of gravity makes us like job last older guys and i include myself in this not quite 55 but i'm thinking if you're around 55 and up in this age range your kids are probably raised the best part of your career is probably over also and you know in this youth focused culture there's a real tendency to say if you're over 55 or so uh you know rest on your laurels take a vacation retire take it easy because we you're old and we don't need anything you've got to bring and you know nothing could be further from the truth Uh, Kathy and I since our early days in the church have been fairly astounded at the lack of older Christian men and women who had a heart to mentor younger Christians and Christian couples and families there's a dearth of this there still is you know when we've come into whatever you call them your golden years your senior years your white hair whatever we should have the most to give not the least We should be the most valuable to the church and to our children, grown children or grandchildren. We have the most to bring. You you read something like Psalm 92, talking about the righteous man, and it says he'll flourish, he'll still yield fruit in old age, they shall be full of sap and very green to declare the Lord is upright, he's my rock and there's no unrighteousness in him. The thought there is the righteous people, even in their old age, they're not going to have a worn-out lifestyle. They're still going to be fruitful in their later years. And they've seen God enough, and they've, they've tasted God enough to be able to rise up and say, He is good. He's where it's at. There's no unrighteousness in Him. If you read 1 John 2, verses 13 and 14, when it talks about spiritual fathers, it says both times you know him you know god and you you guys know in the scriptures eternal life is to know god it's to be in a relationship with god john 17 3 this is life that they may know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you sent that's life well of these spiritual seniors john says they know him and guys that's what we want that's what we want to pass on to others the knowledge of god that comes from experience born over a lifetime that's what we want and as seniors, that's what we have to give. I was thinking of Bob Schneider when I uh, was uh, preparing for this this week. You talked to Bob for a while. Bob's walked with the Lord a long time, and he is a delight. And Bob has this confidence, and he has this settled peace because he knows God, because he's walked and he's lived with God a long time. And it shows. And Bob's an encouragement every time I speak with him. And it's because of that. He knows our dad better than I do. And that's worth knowing something about. That's worth knowing Bob about. Examples for uh, guys in their elderly years, and, and for me, sorry, and all the examples, these, these uh, contrasts on each age segment, this is the most fun uh, and the most discouraging. Uh, you read Joshua 14 and 15. If you're thinking I'm sort of getting up there a little bit and not sure what I have to, to bring to the plate, you know, what, what can I do? You read the story of Caleb, and it'll fire you up. You, you'll, you'll get ready. You'll be ready to get back in the game. You know, Caleb and Joshua, they're only two men that lived from the age of Moses and the Exodus. Only two men. 
went into the land of promise, right? Because the rest of them die in the wilderness. Because they said, we don't believe you, Lord. We don't think we can do it. Joshua and Caleb say, oh no, we're good. Get us in there. Those are the two that go into the land of promise. And at 85 years old, as they've come into the land and Joshua's leading the people, Caleb goes up to his friend, his partner, Joshua, and he says, hey, you remember that promise God made to me back in the day? Well, I'm collecting on it now. That the land I walked on with my own feet, I'm going to collect it today. And you know what the land was? It was the hill country where the giants lived. This guy's 85 years old. He's not only not resting on his laurels, he says, "Uh, by the way, the real estate I'm interested in, that's where the giants live, but not a problem because we're going to kick him out. And he does. And he blesses. I love the story. It's included in there. I'm not sure of all the implications. He says to these young guys, this is a way to get a wife, I guess, come to think of it. He says to these young guys, hey, guys, the guy that first captures that city, he gets my daughter. Whew, he's up. He captures the city. And she's great. She comes up to dad and she says, dad, through her husband, by the way, like a little water with that land we're going to get for this thing. Okay, you've got it. That's Caleb. He's old, but he's still, he's conquering giants. He's taking the hill country and he's blessing his family. That's Caleb. Guys, seriously, one of the most pathetic characters in all of the Bible. In fact, I'm not sure I can think of one. Not Judas, not David. Uh, Eli the priest in the opening chapters of Samuel, 1 Samuel, is one of the most pathetic characters in all the pages of the Bible. This guy was the high priest. And you know, in his way, he he loved God. He respected God. He wanted to serve and honor God, sort of, kind of. But he didn't love God enough to reprove his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. That's what he didn't do. And God came through two different people, the man of God and through the little boy Samuel. And God said, God indicts Eli. And he says, you have preferred your sons over me because you've not disciplined them when they've dishonored me. And because you've done this, he said, I'm cutting off your household. Your two sons are going to die in a single day. There will not be an old man in your family left. That's what Eli got. Eli dies, rolls over, breaks his neck backwards when he gets word that the Ark of the Covenant had been taken and his two sons are dead. And it's all come to pass. And just as you're considering your life and the effect you and I at this stage of life have on others, are we sitting idly by watching God's work crumble before us like Eli? Are we saying with Caleb, we're going to get on with this thing and we're going to stay invested in this game? Men with chests continue to bear fruit and plug in and invest in our later years. There's no retirement for men with chests. We've got to keep at it. Let me close with this. You know, really, and this isn't just the punchline because Jesus is the answer. There's no more, uh, no greater example. There's no more masculine man that's ever strode this earth than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He had a masculine man-to-man relationship with his own father. You know, he talked to his father all the time and his father talked to him and he said, my life is about living for my dad masculinity it's about doing the things my dad gave me to do 
you look at Jesus' life in the Gospels, he also, he knew about defending and protecting widows and orphans and children and women. He was all about taking care of those who might be otherwise compromised. You see that throughout the Gospel accounts. And the last thing that really strikes me about Jesus is his courage, his moral fortitude. Now, you know, as God himself, as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus knew the perfection of his Father's love and he knew the perfection of his Father's wrath. So when Jesus Christ as a man on earth willingly chooses to march up that hill with the cross, he knows he's facing his Father's perfect wrath against sin. Guys, if you and I could have seen what Jesus would face, the wrath of God, the perfect wrath of God, we couldn't get up there. We couldn't do it. Even if we were sinless like Jesus, we could not walk that same walk. It would just terrify us. You'd just melt on the spot. There's been no greater display of manly courage than Jesus going to the cross, knowing who and what he was facing in our place. Greatest single act of courage ever was, ever could be. Jesus going to the cross to die for our sins experiencing the perfect wrath of his father against sin not his own but ours that's that is the most manly man ever if we need a hero and we do and we need a model for real men with chests jesus is it you want to be the best man you can be with the moral compass that rules your head and your emotions your gut it's christ he's it we need men we need masculine men we need we need christ reformed christ redeemed men men with chests today the church our families this culture is dying for men with chests and that's us that's that's every guy in this room let's pray father we ask that you would accomplish your will jesus told us to pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, in heaven your will is perfect. And I pray this morning, Father, that your will would be done in the lives of the men in this room, that you would create in us that Christ-informed, truth-informed, moral center of gravity that informs our lives. God, prevent us from living weak, pathetic lives call us and help us to respond to that upward call to be like your manly son help us to have within ourselves the the character and the qualities of christ that's what your spirit in us means to do and god out of that help us to honor you help us to say thank you to jesus for the redemption he's provided for us and lord help us to be a blessing to the women and the children and the others in our life that you mean us to serve and to bless. In Jesus' name, amen.